0: Good morning, you guys take a seat. We are in Psalm 97 today. Go ahead and read the whole thing to get us started. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness to all the, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is the word of the Lord. So I was sitting in my living room yesterday morning reviewing my sermon notes um, when I get a text message from my dad, my best friend and roommate from college. His wife's a nurse on the labor and delivery floor at Legacy Good Sam Hospital in Portland. I don't know if any of you saw the news yesterday. The text says, there's an active shooter on the labor and delivery floor and she's currently hiding in a stairwell with two patients. Please pray. My first reaction among many things was, I hate evil. I am so sick of evil. Lord, no more. Please no more. Not today, Lord. This is the same friend of mine who two years ago Uh, lost twin babies. One died in the womb and the other one was born without a brain and lived for nine months before passing. And now I'm sitting here praying and imagining my dear brother staring at his phone, wondering if he and his three children are going to see their wife and mom again. So when I read a Psalm like Psalm 97 and it commands me to hate evil, Sometimes I don't really understand why it says that. And that's the only command besides a general call to worship the Lord because he's worthy. In this entire psalm, the only command is hate evil. You don't need to tell me to do that. I know how to hate evil. In fact, don't most people in the world hate evil? I mean, that's the one of if not the number one one of the most significant reasons why people have problems with christianity or struggle to know and love the lord is the problem of evil in the world if god is so good how come he allows all this evil in the world it's a really good question so what is the author of this psalm getting at here because we look at the news every single morning and we see all these horrible things going on around the world and we hate that they're happening, but the fact that I hate child slavery, the fact that I hate trafficking, the fact that I hate tyrannical warlords doesn't fundamentally change anything, right? I, I, just, I just hate them. But here's the thing about hate. Hate's not merely an emotional word. It, it, it is a strong emotional word, but that's not all it is. It's an emotion that demands action. You don't hate something without acting upon it. If you hate spiders, you don't just think angry thoughts about spiders. You actively pursue their destruction in any way possible, right? You move into a new house and you hate that paint color on the wall. You don't just leave it and put all your furniture against the wall. You paint that sucker quickly. But what about all the other awful things going on in the world? Oftentimes the things we hate, we have little to no ability to do anything tangibly about, like my friend huddling from an active shooter in a stairwell in Portland. You can hate all you want, all the little things that are going on, all the evil things are going on in the world. But unless you grab a rifle and go over to the front lines of Ukraine, or join up with the International Justice Mission and go start kicking down the doors of trafficking rings, the hatred is doing nothing more been causing angst and frustration and a sense of helplessness. you guys tired of looking at the news? Like one more tragedy that I can do nothing about. Now, obviously there's prayer and that's powerful. That's another sermon. Always pray. It does work. But what are we supposed to do with this commandment, this action statement? You who love the Lord hate evil. How? How do we hate evil? Because honestly, most of the time when I hate evil, it just ruins my day. It just makes me frustrated. It makes me question God's goodness sometimes. So sometimes I just need to get it out of my head. And if I just just don't think about evil, if I just stay off social media, if I stay off the news, I have a better day. Well, this psalm actually answers that question. How do we hate evil in the previous nine verses? Let me lay a little groundwork before we get into the how, because first we need to establish a couple things about the way God works and, and how we work. So, verses, uh, let's start in verse 3 of Psalm 97. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So, this is how God hates evil He burns up his enemies with fire. The entire earth trembles before His enemies. Power. Uh, The word mountains there in verse 5, it's often a metaphor that refers to idols or or things that people worship instead of God and and place in these high positions. He melts them like wax. Wouldn't that be nice? If I say the ability of Osama bin Laden, melted. Vladimir Putin, melted. Fortunately, it doesn't work like that. And the problem when we read that is that there's no inherent morality statement in these three verses. If you just read verses three through five, we're not actually sure if this God is good while he's doing all these terrifying and destructive things. In fact, a lot of people would say, well, that's proof that he isn't because a loving God wouldn't do that. So how do we know we can trust this guy? How do we know that the way he hates evil is, is good? Back to verse two, just before this. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. So there's, there's a bit of mystery. We don't we don't fully know and understand him. But righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. I'm a Bible nerd. I'm going into seminary right now. You've heard me go on and on. I think it was last sermon or two sermons ago about tzedakah and mishpat, righteousness and justice. And there are these themes and threads that go all the way from Genesis through Revelation. This is the way God works. This is the gay way God creates covenants. This is the way God relates with his people and with all people is on a throne of righteousness and justice. Everything he does is on a foundation of righteousness, doing the right and the moral thing, And justice, fairness, equal weights and measures, everyone receiving what they deserve. So he is incredibly powerful, but he never uses his power to bully. He doesn't abuse it. He doesn't allow himself to do wrongdoing or commit evil because of his power. Now, that doesn't mean that God answers to. Anyone, He is the source of morality and justice. There are all sorts of rabbit trails we could go down about that. We're not going to go there for the sake of time. So I'm just going to assume that today you all agree with me that God defines goodness and morality and justice. So when the psalmist tells us to hate evil, how do we do that without sinning? First of all, I don't have laser eyes. I can't melt mountains. And if I did, I would probably use the powers and things that benefited me. Or on the other hand of things, how do we avoid being crushed by anxiety at the sheer volume of evil we see on the news every day? Well, we hate evil the same way God does, on a foundation of righteousness and justice. Are you tracking with me here? This is the first thing. The second thing is this. Did you know that all of you are kings and queens? Now, I'm not talking about, yes, queen, or boss babes, or anything like that. But every one of you has a little kingdom in which you have control and some sense of sovereignty. Um, you want to have a purse or a wallet or something up here in the front? Can I borrow that for a second? So, so imagine if I just start just rifling through this, you know, and just, just looking around and, oh, that's interesting. How, how do you feel right now? Violated? <laughs> Confused? Concerned? Why did I choose this church this morning? (laughs) Thank you. That is her queendom. She has a say of what goes on there, not me. She is the queen of her purse. Now, now, all of you might have different uh, sizes of kingdoms. It may just be you know, whatever you've got in your pockets. If you're a kid, it may just be some of the toys in your room, or maybe not even all the toys in your room because you share it with your darn brother. Or maybe you have a 15 passenger van you just rolled up in with a ton of kids, or you own a business and you've got you know, 100 plus employees. Whatever it may be, you have a kingdom of, of some kind of size. And and that's a good thing. That's the way God designed it to be. All the way back in Genesis, he designed the world for us to come in it and to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over creation, to cultivate it, to rule over it, and to create culture and kingdoms and economies and bring order and human flourishing out of the chaos and the raw materials. There's this helpful model we've talked about before called spheres of influence. There's a number of different ways you can apply it. Um, But think of like an archery target and you've got concentric circles, consistently larger and larger. And and the innermost circle is, is yourself. That's your body, your mind, your heart, your desires, everything that goes on in here. The next circle out is is your blood relatives, your your spouse, your kids, your home, all those things that are very close, daily life, where you sleep, where you eat on a daily basis, that kind of thing. Next one out would be uh, maybe your church, your church family, depending on how much you like them. Um, Extended family, again, depending on how much you like them. And then the next level out from that would be coworkers, neighbors, um, communities, parks, public spaces, that kind of thing, and on and on it goes, all the way out to you know the marginalized, the homeless community, at you know other countries. It just you can go out all the way in degrees of of connection and influence. And now this will look different for each one of you, depending on, like I said, how much you own, how many people you know, what kind of personality you have, all that kind of stuff. Have anyone ever noticed how Russell Brown just knows everybody in this entire town? I was talking to him last week, hey, I met this guy, oh, I've known that guy for 20 years. How do you know everyone? I'm way too introverted to know that many people. But each one of you has a sphere of influence in which we have varying levels of control over the environment and the outcomes that happen within those environments. Theologian Dallas Willard once said, your body is the primary place of your kingdom. So no matter how big or small your kingdom may be, we all have the same starting point, the innermost circle of your body, your mind, and your heart. So with that framework in mind, with with God working against evil on a foundation of righteousness and justice, and with us having little kingdoms, let's dive in and look at two ways to biblically and actively hate evil from a godly foundation of righteousness and justice. The first thing, the first way we hate evil is by fighting for righteousness in your little kingdom fighting for righteousness in your little kingdom. Let's read Psalm 97, verses 6 and 7. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. So it's almost as saying creation is evidence of the goodness of God. Everywhere you look, the millions of stars, the galaxies, the vastness of space, the complexity of a single cell, these are all clear evidence that God is a good and caring God who put incredible effort into everything he does. He cares. He's attentive to every single detail and element of creation, and he continues to care for it. Hebrews says that he sustains creation by his power. This isn't merely a one and done, and then he just kind of sits back and sees what happens. God is actively sustaining creation as we speak. But even if you're not so sure that God is good, you can at least see intelligent design and his incredible power. The Apostle Paul attests to this in the book of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Turn there with me. <clears throat> Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the truth is that God is a good and all-powerful of creator, and that truth is so obvious that it takes specific and intentional effort to deny. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what Paul calls unrighteousness, suppressing the obvious truth. So what is righteousness then? Well, it's, it's really simple. Righteousness is simply acknowledging the obvious, that God is the creator and ruler of all things, and that because of that, aligning your life according to his definition of morality and goodness. So a righteous person says, God, you define reality. You define goodness. You define right and wrong. And I will align myself with your definitions. I'm not going to make my best judgment call here based on my personal desires. I'm going to look to your word, look to your wisdom, and seek you. But our rebellious flesh doesn't like to do that, does it? And when you do not honor God and give him thanks, and when you do not believe the truth, admit to the truth, you exchange the glory of the immortal God for lesser images. As it says in verse 23, you become an idolater, an idol worshiper. I know we like to think of that as kind of this ancient thing, like, oh, they made carved images. and Yeah, we don't do that anymore necessarily. But we are still just as much idol worshippers as they were three, 4,000 years ago. If you don't believe me, here's an illustration. So say you're watching a football game. And the game is tied, there's three seconds left, the offense is on the 50-yard line, they're about to kick a field goal into the headwind for the wind, for the win, and the ball is snapped, the kick is up, and it's good! And the team rushes out onto the field and runs right past the kicker and runs all the way to the end zone, picks up the football and goes, praise the football! The football flew straight, it did well! Football for MVP! Did the ball do anything? No, that's ridiculous. The ball merely responded to the input of the kicker, the velocity, the angle, the strength. And that's what idolatry is. It's running past the kicker and praising the ball, the object, rather than the intelligent kicker, the source. See, idolatry is the root of all sin. Somewhere in there, there's an element of idolatry. As the psalmist says in verse 7, let me turn back there. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Stop worshiping worthless things and pursuing evil. Hating evil biblically begins with warring against the evil influences within yourself, your appetites, your desires, and choosing to worship God and align yourself with his desires rather than your own. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. It should be up on the screen for you as well. Chapter 6, verse 10 through 14. For the death he died, that is Christ, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The key here is not that you never sin, but that you war against sin. This is a battle. Sin does not have dominion or control in your kingdom. It is not the one sitting on the throne in your little kingdom. It doesn't have the final say in your body, your appetites, and the things that it wants, your heart, the things that it values the most, and your mind, the things that you dwell on and process and obsess over. This means that you battle temptation, and you often win. Not every time. You're not perfect yet, but you battle hard, And it's consistent fight to align your life with God. And by God's grace, your efforts, let me be clear, by the power of the Holy Spirit within you and the finished work of Jesus on the cross for you, but by your efforts, those things purify you. That pursuit of righteousness purifies you. Now, this is not earning it any more than bringing the fork to your mouth is earning the food. God made the food. He's the one who provided the nutrients, and he's the one who created your body to be able to take that food in and do its work to provide you nutrients and life. But you did the work to apply it to your body. That's what pursuing righteousness in our life looks like, picking up the fork and applying the work of God to our body. And that purifying work within you, your person, the very center of that sphere of influence, works to spread outwardly in the spheres of influence. For you who are parents, is there anything more frustrating or eye-opening than watching your children sin and then realizing that they're copying you? One day, my oldest, Ellie, um, was whining incessantly, and she would not stop. She wouldn't listen. She wouldn't obey. All day long, it was just not a good day. And uh, so at dinner time, I'm trying to watch this video of this recipe to, to... make dinner, and she's just chaos in my ears, and, and I whip around, and I go, Ellie, stop talking, stop whining, and I smack her on the behind. Overreaction, sin on my part. About a week later, Ellie was bothering my younger, her sister, Sophie, and Sophie yells, Ellie, no talk of me, and smacks her on the head. <laughs> I'm like, Sophie, Oh, yeah, that's on me. And now, of course, kids are their own little sinners too. It's not all on me. But the sanctification process going on inside of your heart affects our spheres of influence. Think of it like if you drop a rock into a pond. Obviously, the largest splashes and the biggest waves are the closest to where the rock drops, but there are these little ripples that affect out all the way across the pond. It's amazing how far they go. And I think in our lives, we don't really understand the, the impact of those ripples and how far they actually can go. But by faith and perseverance, hating evil by fighting for righteousness in your little kingdom starts with you from the inside out. So that's the first way we hate evil. The second way we hate evil is by this, fighting for justice in the kingdoms around you. Let's go back to Psalm 97, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted, exalted far above all gods. So who are these people he's talking about, and uh, why do they rejoice because of judgment? That's not something I've ever thrown a party for, judgment. Come on down, there's judgment. Let's celebrate. Well, the term for, for daughters of Judah, it refers to the common folk, the villagers and the citizens that kind of live in the out, outskirts and the territories around Jerusalem. Uh, these are the lowly people. They have no ability to defend themselves. They don't, they don't have a second amendment right. They don't have you know, swords and armies to protect them. They are at the mercy of the Lord to be their vindicator. So they rejoice that God's judgment Make sure that everyone is finally getting exactly what they deserve. The judgment of God means that justice is being done for those who cannot defend themselves, whether that be from evil people or corrupt systems, what have you. It's kind of funny where, where sermon prep can take you. It's down some really weird rabbit holes and, and really fascinating things that really hard to stay on track when you're trying to you know, search for ideas and come up with analogies and things like that. I came across this article. Um, about the injustice of flat fee fines. So when, when a, um, a crime is a flat rate, no matter who commits it, you pay this certain amount. And it was talking about how they punish the poor disproportionately to the rich. And there was this quote in the article that fits so well with what we're talking about today that I wanted to read it, and I have it put it up on the screen. This guy isn't a Christian. He's just a, he's just a, a law student. <clears throat> Here's the quote. It's as if we punish in accordance with the philosophy of eye for an eye, but we live in a society where some people start with one eye and some people start with 20 eyes. Taking an eye for an eye means something quite different when imposed on a one-eyed man than it does with a 20-eyed man. The one-eyed man has been punished with blindness while the 20-eyed man can shrug and simply have one of the lenses removed from his spectacles. Isn't that good? The one-eyed man has been punished with blindness, life-altering problems, while the 20-eyed man can shrug and simply have one of the lenses removed from his spectacles. The Book of Amos, chapter 5, verse 15 says, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. I like the Net Bible translation. It says, hate what is wrong, love what is right, promote justice. That's a to-do list I can get behind. Hate what is wrong, love what is right, promote justice. The idea is that when you see injustice in your city, in your neighborhood, in your community, particularly against those who cannot defend themselves, the poor, the marginalized, the the minority cultures, one-eyed people, we may say. It is your job to hate evil by using whatever influences you have in your spheres to see these wrongs made right. I love the way my seminary professor words this. He asked this question regarding justice. How do I treat the worthless-to-me person? How do I treat the worthless-to-me person? And there's a couple things about this question, because first, we're not talking about how how does the system—we're not pawning it off on some other thing and removing ourselves from the equation. When I look at injustice, I say, how can I love and treat the worthless-to-me person. It's not about just having moral laws and good judges in court systems and all of that. Justice is about providing help and benefit to those from which I will receive no benefit or help if their situation improves. That's, that's true justice. But God isn't merely about retributive justice, which is what that is, just an eye for an eye and making sure that all the balances and measures are, are weighed correctly. God's version of justice is way bigger than that. Turn with me real quick to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. If God's justice were merely about retribution, just making wrongs, right? The verse would have stopped at deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, right? I mean, that's the just and fair thing. Take slaves and make them free. Full stop. Justice has been done. Good job, God, right? But God's justice doesn't end at retribution. It's more than that. It's about seeking human flourishing. He doesn't have to give them a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. That's above and beyond justice, But that's how God's justice works. It's not merely preventing the one-eyed person from going blind. It's finding ways to make the one-eyed person a ten-eyed person or a twenty-eyed person. Realistically, does it benefit my life at all to get one more homeless beggar off the street corner and into a clean and fulfilling life? Objectively, no. It, It doesn't really affect my life at all. But that's the justice of God, pursuing human flourishing for the sake of his deep love, not merit, not worth, not the benefit that it'll bring to me, his love, imago Dei, the inherent image of God in all people. And you all know how far God went, didn't he? He sent his only begotten son to die on the cross in our place, to defeat death, to right all wrongs, To fling open the doorway for human flourishing. Jesus says in John 10, I have come that they may have life. How does that verse end? And have it abundantly. Not merely, I came that they may have a clean slate from which to earn God's love. No. He doesn't just give you a clean slate the clean slate, when he gives you justice. He stacks the deck in your favor. I have come that you may have life abundantly. And so the way we hate evil, biblically, on a foundation of righteousness and a foundation of justice, is to fight for that flourishing in the lives of worthless-to-me people. Not merely making sure things are fair, fighting for flourishing, James 1.27 says this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I mean, that sums it all up right there, doesn't it? Visit orphans and widows. Justice. Keep oneself unstained from the world. Righteousness. That's, That's the whole package right there. You want to honor God and love him and serve him and fight evil the way he does? Justice and righteousness. Two applicational thoughts to kind of of wrap this thing up. So righteousness starts from the inside out, warring against evil influence within. And justice starts from the outside in, fighting for those who cannot defend themselves. The problem is we often get these backwards As Christians, we often spend our time imposing righteousness on the world around us and then spending our time defending our own rights in our little inner circle. And there are serious dangers with both of these errors. First, on imposing righteousness. So I play softball with a bunch of guys on a Medford Rec League once a week on Monday nights. And um, last week's game, the umpire gathered the team captains together before the game and warned them that there's this new, really strict no cussing rule. If there are any curse words heard at all in the game, the umpire stops the game and he will go systematically find out who said the curse word and then kick them out of the game and slap them with a $25 fine. And then a repeat offender gets kicked out for the rest of the season. Most of these guys are not Christian, by the way. And this isn't just like people being rude to each other and mean, it's like if any cuss word is heard at all, like under your breath because you were frustrated that you made a mistake complete ban. And you know what? I heard the exact same number of curse words I normally do. They were just a lot quieter. (laughs) Nobody became a better person because of that rule. Nobody went, you know what? Not cussing is so much better. I am going to reform my entire life. Thank you, umpire and $25 fine threat. The problem is when Christians try to impose righteousness on those who are not filled and empowered by the spirit to actually live that way, to actually be transformed, we end up putting out this achievable but lame version of righteousness. And it doesn't save anyone. Has anyone ever gained eternal life by not smoking, cussing, or chewing, or go with girls who are doing? No, of course not. It's ridiculous. That's a cheap gospel. All we've done is helped them live a slightly cleaner life before they burn in hell anyway. That's the reality of imposing righteousness on the world. If you want to see righteousness around you, if you want to see righteousness in your community, it starts by the power of the gospel to hate evil within yourself and wage war against it, transforming you from within and flowing outward to others around you. Maybe for you that does mean committing to not cussing. I don't know. You do you. You know what your problems are, what your sins are. But it's about starting from within and working hard until we see those ripples start to move out. And if enough people do that, the entire pond starts shaking with ripples of righteousness. Secondly, on prioritizing our own justice. If I'm going to get emails about anything, it's this. So my email is jbreitler at... (laughs) Remember during the initial COVID lockdowns and there were restrictions on church gatherings as well? Well, in California, and actually I think in in Oregon too, I don't know if it went all the way, but there were a bunch of churches that banded together to sue the state governors over the injustice of the restrictions on religious gatherings. Now, I am grateful for the freedom we have in this country. We should not take it for granted. The fact that we're all sitting here is a product of that, and I am grateful for that. But I think this did huge damage to the witness of the gospel in America. Because you know what this communicated to non-believers? Christians, and therefore God, care more about personal freedoms than the lives of the marginalized and the at-risk individuals. Look, I get it. Masks did little to nothing, and, and there's evidence now showing that the lockdowns might have caused more deaths than they actually saved because of delayed cancer screenings and delayed surgeries and all of the mental health issues that we're running into now. I understand all of that. That doesn't matter. The churches who did this inadvertently told the world, even though they didn't mean to, oh, you're terrified of dying from this disease? God doesn't care about your life. He cares more about his social club gathering than you living. The world doesn't see the righteousness and justice of God when we are more concerned about protecting our own rights than compassionately fighting for the flourishing of all people. And that may mean putting on a mask when you don't want to in order to help them feel more comfortable and show them that God cares about the things that they worry about here's the hope in all of this. Sorry for the downer, but I just, I got to speak the truth. Let me leave you with this. When you hate evil as God does, and you war against it with all of your might, God has really, really, really good promises for you. The end of the Psalm, verses 10 through 12. Oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. You don't have to defend your rights. God is your justice. He will defend you. He will save you from the wicked. verse 11, light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. You don't have to pursue pleasures and look to light and look for joy on your own and chase after worthless idols to try to get that high, to try to get that fix God plants seeds of joy and righteousness and light that spring up in the most unlikely scenarios and in the most unexpected of circumstances for those who die to themselves and live righteously for God. problem is a lot of us are just impatient. We want the joy now when God is planting joy for you all along the way if you're simply willing to say, yes, Lord. And because of these beautiful promises that he will defend us, he is our justice and he is our source of immeasurable joy. Verse 12, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Let's do that right now. Let's rejoice in the Lord. Will you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you for being good. Thank you for being just thank you for being consistent in your character, that you always love, you always protect, you always hope, you always trust. Thank you that you use your power to benefit your kingdom, to benefit your people, and to chase after the lost. Lord, give us eyes to see the areas in our lives that we need to reform. Give us wills that are are willing to lay down before you, Lord. To say your way, not my way. Lord, give us eyes to look for injustice and, and boldness to go make that right in whatever capacity you have given us to. Obviously, not everybody has the same influence, the same ability, but Lord, let us see as you see. Let us see people as you see people with hearts of compassion that long to see them flourish for the sake of your name, for the sake of your image in them, not because it benefits us, not because it makes it a cleaner country, not because of any other reason other than you love them, and we long to see them know that love. Thank you, Lord, that you promise us these good things and we get to rejoice in your goodness. We get to rejoice in your faithfulness. Consecrate us, Lord. Let us consecrate our lives to be ever before you, seeking an increasing holiness before you, a righteousness in our own lives and a pursuit of justice in the world around us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Will you stand with me as we close with a final song?